this is Inside Geneva. I'm your host, Imogen Folks, and this is a Swissinfo.ch production. From the world's humanitarian capital, we explore the challenges facing our planet. Whether it's migration or climate change, human rights or global health, I'll be taking you behind the scenes for some straight talk with the people facing up to those challenges. In today's programme. As COVID-19 cases spike in some countries, it's clear that the pandemic isn't slowing down. That's why many are pinning their hopes on a vaccine. The global race for a coronavirus vaccine is driving us forwards this hour with the UK, US and China among the countries sprinting ahead for a possible pandemic escape route. As the coronavirus spreads and spreads around the world and remains stubbornly present even in countries which imposed strict lockdowns, we're all beginning to realise that the only way out of this trap we're in is a vaccine. So how and when will we get one? And who'll get it first? To discuss this, I've been talking to three experts. Nora Kronig, head of the International Division at the Swiss Federal Health Office. For me, it's not really a matter of thinking, you know, egoistically on, okay, we have to make sure that we will be, you know, defending our national interests. I think that we are truly engaged in vaccine multilateralism now because we do know that we will not find a quick solution if we do it alone. Thomas Cooney director of the International Federation of Pharmaceutical Manufacturers. We can't cut corners in safety. If you do cut corners, if there are problems with the vaccine, this would undermine confidence in vaccines probably way beyond COVID-19. And Seth Barkley, head of Gavi, the Global Vaccine Alliance. The likelihood, the probability of success for a vaccine is less than 10%. So you might be lucky, you might have a deal and that might lead to a good vaccine. You might have no vaccine that works and you end up at the back of the queue. Now we all know that vaccines against polio, measles or diphtheria have saved millions of lives and basically made our world a much safer place. But do we know what it takes to actually make a vaccine? That's the question I thought we'd start with, and I put it to pharmaceutical expert Thomas Cooney. First, you need to know what is the vaccine for. And here we are talking about an amazing speed of development, because only on January 10 did we know the genomic data sequence of SARS-CoV-2, the coronavirus, which is causing COVID-19. When you start developing a vaccine, you first do preclinical research uh, with computer modeling, with animal testing. Once you have results from this and you can see that your vaccine is working in animals, you go for what's called clinical trial phase one, relatively small group of healthy volunteers, and you test the vaccine there. For example, one study which has recently come out, there were 45 uh, volunteers. When you have the results and you see that the vaccine is causing the body to create antibodies, which hopefully will protect us against uh, the coronavirus, Then you expand the trial with phase 
two and then phase three, which means then you talk about numbers of 3,000 or even 30,000. And you are looking for safety as well as efficacy. The challenge is that you need to be sure that both works. And that normally does take 10 to 15 years. It doesn't sound as if this is a process that's a matter of a few short months. I listen to politicians as well as some, you know, folks from some vaccine companies. I must say I'm cautious in terms of raising expectations. We may be lucky and we may see results of clinical trials by fall, late September, early October, which may make it feasible that a vaccine approval, the first one may be granted this year, but that doesn't mean that we will have the number of doses available. Therefore, the uh, optimistic scenario is that we hope to have 2 billion doses next year. We know that at the end of the day, we may need up to 15 billion doses, which means we will have to make judgments who needs the vaccines first, who needs to be protected first. So who is first? Well, one thing the World Health Organization's leader, Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus, has been calling for from the start is a commitment from governments and big business that they won't treat a vaccine as a commodity sold first to the richest countries. A global consensus on making any vaccine that will be found or discovered as a public, uh, global public good. And for that to happen, we need political commitment. To try to ensure that global public good, the WHO has set up the COVID-19 Global Access Facility, COVAX for short. Gavi, the Global Vaccine Alliance, is at the centre of it, bringing the Alliance's years of experience delivering vaccines to all who need them, regardless of ability to pay. Gavi's director, Seth Barkley, told me more. It is our belief that nobody is safe unless everybody is safe in a pandemic. So when we originally started, we thought about our our traditional role, which would be to try to make sure there were vaccines for those living in the poorest countries. But we rapidly realized that if we did that, there would be no vaccines to purchase or distribute because vaccines might be bought up by the wealthy countries. So we ended up designing a facility, the COVAX facility, which is to try to provide vaccines for everybody in the world. Together, we have about 165 countries that so far have expressed interest in the facility. But of course, it's going one step beyond and actually joining the facility that's going to define who's interested. Do you think there is an understanding that this is not a situation where national interests can come first and foremost? Well, of course, when you think about governments, their job is to protect their citizens. And so, in a sense, the first instinct is, how do we get vaccines for our citizens? What this this virus has taught us, though, um, it started as a point outbreak in around Wuhan, and within about three months, it was in 180 countries around the world, including some very isolated ones. 
what that tells you is that you have to have a global perspective. So even if you could get vaccine just for your country, as long as the virus is circulating in large amounts all around you, you are still at risk. And we cannot go back to a normal situation of commerce and trade and travel um, that would be what people would expect. And so we think it's not only a self-interest um, to work with the rest of the world, but it's also um, uh, the right thing to do in addition. There are some big countries, big powers, big economies who, who don't seem to be on board. I mean, the United States hasn't expressed an interest yet. I think Russia hasn't either. Has China? So we've actually had discussions with the United States and, and, um, and, and there has been interest, although it has not um, uh, yet led to a full engagement. Um, we've also had discussions with China and there's been interest. We haven't um, with Russia. Um, but I think the, the point here is um, the initial reaction is to think only about your country. But as I said, if you start thinking about it, you wanna think about it more broadly. The other thing that's important is we don't know which vaccines, or frankly, if any of the vaccines are going to work. So if a country was to form a bilateral arrangement with a manufacturer for one or two, the, um, it actually, from historical um, uh, studies, have shown that the likelihood, the probability of success for a vaccine is less than 10%. So you might be lucky, you might have a deal, and that might lead to a good vaccine, but you could also be in a situation where you invest heavily on one, two, three, four bilateral deals, and at the end, you might have no vaccine that works and you end up at the back of the queue. And many wealthy countries have seen the common sense of that cooperative risk-sharing strategy. Among them is Switzerland, who is now co-chair of COVAX, together with Singapore. Nora Kronig of Switzerland's Federal Health Office. I think that it's the first time that we would have one global joint pool that would uh, bring a product to the patients. As far as I'm concerned, I don't think that historically this, uh, this pool effort was done in such an ambitious way. I think it's ambitious because uh, the world is big. There are, there are many countries. There's uh, many, many people that we would uh, have to reach. Um, but I think that the pandemic has actually shown how much we are all impacted, how much we need to work together and, and how much we have to find common solutions. Tell me about Switzerland's involvement in this COVAX initiative. As I understand it, this is to try to ensure that countries less wealthy than Switzerland with less sophisticated health structures are not left out in a race to get the vaccine. I think that we will be even more ambitious than making sure that that all countries can can access the vaccine i think the ambition that we have with the covax facility is really to joint efforts and to go on on supply in a joint manner and because of the challenge of finding the vaccine, because of the very ambitious timelines, we do see that there is an important coming together of the public and the private sector because we need to invest in research and development. We need to bring up a certain risk capital because uh, we don't know what will work. We, we do have to push the efforts that uh, 
seem to be successful. And then we also have to do it in a way that we make sure not just that the vaccine is efficient, but also that it is safe, meaning that we have to do clinical trials. And for that, we, we realize already now that working together is the best way. If I look at an example like Switzerland, if we, we just do it alone and we, we just uh, follow one candidate from one company, uh, that might not work. Nobody nowadays can really tell you which uh, vaccine will work, which uh, company would be successful with which timeline. And I think that coming together and joining efforts and going into really the direction of joint pools is something that is important for all the countries in the world. It's probably our first opportunity to do something truly together from Switzerland's perspective. The COVAX facility should really be a pool where we can all buy and get vaccines from because we have diversified the support, because we have followed and supported financially different candidates, and because we have accompanied the research and development, but then also the path of the bringing to the market uh, dimension in a, in a joint way. But even with this multilateral effort to get a vaccine, there are huge obstacles. However much pharmaceutical companies ramp up production, they will not have a dose for every person on the planet on day one. And as countries suppress the virus, it becomes harder to test a vaccine as Thomas Cooney explains. We are seeing a race against time. For example, I'm based in Geneva. We are in Switzerland. I can't see how you could do a clinical trial in Switzerland uh, when you basically have double-digit numbers, low triple-digit numbers. There's simply not enough infections that you could do a proper test. When you look at uh, overall on a global level, there are regions where you still have uh, violent infections, where you have hotspots uh, in parts of Latin America, for example, in the US, for example. And that's where you can do clinical trials because the problem is, you know, we are flattening the curve as we all hope. And we see that social distancing has had an impact uh, in flattening the curves. But we do know the virus has not disappeared. We all remember SARS in 2003. Uh, one of the reasons why we didn't start from scratch on this vaccine is SARS was also coronavirus. But the SARS uh, vaccine could never be tested in the clinic for simple reason. By the time one was ready for it, the virus had disappeared. And therefore, we didn't have a vaccine and we still don't have a vaccine against the coronavirus and, of course, SARS-CoV-2 is not the same as SARS in 2003, fortunately, because the infection fatality rate there was much higher than it is now. Are we going to be able to avoid the situation which we saw with HIV-AIDS, where wealthy countries had the antiretrovirals, um, which were expensive for years before, for example, countries in sub-Saharan Africa were able to, to get it? Now, you see me hesitate a little bit because the jury is still out. What I've seen, and that makes me optimistic, uh, we were part of the call to action when you had Commission President von der Leyen uh, flanked by President Macron and Chancellor Merkel and many other heads of state 
clearly committed to equitable, available and also affordable. And when I listen to these statements, I'm cautiously optimistic that we will not see that again. At the same time, it is a natural reaction that uh, politicians do not want to be accused of uh, ignoring the needs of their own citizens. There, on the other hand, I think everybody is deeply conscious until the pandemic is over, until we have really defeated uh, SARS-CoV-2, no one is safe because this is a global danger. And when I followed the discussions uh, in Geneva on, for example, allocation of vaccines, I see a pretty broad consensus that one needs to ensure that you do give priority on the global level, not within a country just, to, for example, the frontline, the healthcare workers. That is about 1% of the world population. You don't need massive doses. The second consensus I see, you do want to give priority in vaccinations to vulnerable populations. That is in general people over 65 or people with other diseases, comorbidities. If you add that on a global level, you add about 8% of the global population. I do see a pretty firm commitment that we need early on to have some allocation which are based on solidarity. 90 million doses of potential coronavirus vaccines have been secured by the government after deals with overseas developers. Pfizer to produce millions of doses of its vaccine, COVID-19 vaccine. Pfizer would deliver 100 million doses into the United States once the vaccine is approved. The vaccine would be available to Americans at no cost. Uh, there you can see but already, uh, contrary to that appeal for solidarity, richer countries are pre-ordering hundreds of millions of doses of potential vaccines. Both the US and the UK have signed contracts, giving them the right to buy the first batches of vaccines they think will be successful. Politicians are, as ever, keen to please their own voters first. Through Operation Warp Speed, we will deliver a vaccine in record-breaking time. We're doing very well on the vaccines. We have many, many different vaccines. Seth Barkley of Gavi, however, doesn't believe the national approach will be faster or more effective. Cooperation, he says, is the wisest investment. If we want to have vaccine available as quickly as possible, we're going to have to start manufacturing those vaccines even before we know they work. What that means is some of that is going to be wasted money. And yet that at-risk investment is how you get to the fastest way to have vaccines available for people. And our argument is that today the epidemic is costing global GDP about $375 billion a month. So if we were able to move vaccines up by five or six days, we would pay for the entire effort. And in fact, the global effort we're trying to do is actually trying to move it up by six to eight months. So this would be a very cost-effective intervention. Fast forward, say we've got a vaccine that looks successful. It's on the production lines. Do you not fear then a kind of frenzied bidding war? from the wealthier countries. They'll be under pressure to provide the vaccine for each and every one of their citizens. 
Well, first of all, the way we're trying to deal with getting large quantities is to distribute manufacturing across many different countries, many different manufacturers. And costs, that's helpful uh, because you, you divide the risk of, of having vaccine be nationalized or not uh, be allowed to be exported. Um, the other thing about it is if you get a large enough numbers of, of, of countries in the facility, they can then work together to try to drive this forward versus competing with each other. So the, the hypothesis behind the facility is that if we could get about 20% of each country's population vaccinated in the initial phase, that would dampen down dramatically the pandemic and also protect the health systems. So the idea is to start with health workers and vaccinate those across the world and then move into high risk groups as well as groups that are at high risk for transmission like those working in nursing homes or refugee camps in the developing world or meatpacking plants in some countries. And if you could get to that level, then you would have uh, protection across the world. And over time, then as more vaccines were available, you could vaccinate higher levels in every country. We think this is the most efficient way to use the limited supplies that clearly will exist at the beginning of when we determine that a vaccine works. Yes, but some countries, some leaders are going to want to be able to say, I've got a vaccine for each and every one of you. I mean, that's good politics. That's correct. And, and some leaders may be lucky and have vaccines that work and be able to do that. But that does not mean that their population will be safe after that, because, of course, no vaccine is 100 percent effective. And if the virus is continuing to um, uh, to be out of control in other countries, those countries aren't going to be uh, able to be tourists or be able to purchase goods, et cetera. So this is not a good way to get back to normality. But of course, I understand um, uh, the, the drive of, of uh, people to want to do that. Do you think the world has learned some lessons about how to fight an emerging disease since HIV AIDS? We know how long it took for lower income countries to get access to antiretrovirals. Have we learned lessons or is it all just well-meaning and it will fall apart as soon as a, a vaccine comes on the market? Well, I would argue, of course, that we've learned an enormous amount. I mean, Gavi's existence is here to make sure that low and lower middle incomes will have access to the same vaccines that wealthy countries do. And we've now been able to get to the point where we almost have simultaneous launches in North and South. We have learned a lot in terms of doing it. We are in an unprecedented situation though. It's probably the worst outbreak for a hundred years. And so how people behave in this type of situation is different. We, we do have the 2009 swine flu experience, where, as you know, a number of countries bought up uh, most of the doses that were available, and therefore there was very little available for other countries. And that's really what we should be trying to avoid here, is to really make sure that there is going to be access for countries across the world. But what does Nora Kronig of the Swiss Federal Health Office think? Does she fear public pressure to buy enough doses for the entire population of Switzerland once a vaccine proves successful? First of all, I think regarding Switzerland's needs, we do have a, a population of modest size 
Uh, we don't have compulsory vaccination policies in Switzerland, and uh, we do go from the premise that there will be population groups that we will not vaccinate, at least not in the first step. Um, so even if we would go for a very ex extensive coverage where we would, of course, be counting on the population's participation, uh, we, we would not go on, on more than, I, I guess, around 60% of the population. We have a, an 8 million population, uh, so, so you can more or less see how many doses of a vaccine that would actually mean. When you look at all the, the productions that would be coming out of the candidates that look now as being the, the fastest along the path, nobody is talking about a few million doses. It's uh, productions that scale up uh, very fast to 100 millions of doses. And when you look at Gavi's ambition for the COVAX facility of, of 2 billion doses by the end of, of 2021, I mean, we are in magnitudes and volumes that are just... Uh, of a different scale. So right away, you would be in, in volumes that are anyhow bigger than, than the pure needs. So for me, it's not really a matter of thinking, you know, egoistically on, okay, we have to make sure that we will be, you know, defending our national interests. I think that we are truly engaged in vaccine multilateralism now because we do know that we will not find a quick solution if we do it alone. Uh, we, we have to be mindful of the fact that we are an open, liberal country with lots of uh, border crossing every day. If you look, for example, at Geneva, it was even clearer during the pandemic at how much we have a common living space where we do work together, we do interact, we do look at hospital capacities, we do look at how to take uh, uh, patients when, when the capacities in France were overwhelmed. And I think that for me, vaccines is, is, is just exactly the same approach. Why vaccinate people on one side of the border and not on the other side of the border? It's uh, just something that in, in terms of public health, it makes no sense. That vaccine multilateralism in the face of a pandemic is exactly what the World Health Organization wants to see. Because as scientists are discovering... This is a wily virus that affects some only mildly and kills others. It can, we now know, be transmitted before those infected have even the slightest symptoms. So as scientists race towards a vaccine, their understanding of the virus is changing, says Seth Barkley. As we learn more about this virus, um, the science changes. And one important point is the effects of this virus over the longer time. There, there tended to be a situation that said, oh, well, most people get it. It's not severe disease. And those who get it, you know, a small number get very sick, but everybody else is fine. But we're now finding out that there are long-term consequences of infection. And, and that really matters as well, because you not only have mortality from this, but you have morbidity. So in terms of your question on the science, there are some big questions. Obviously, we don't know what's going to work. In other coronaviruses, the seasonal coronaviruses, you do not have long-term immunity. So you can go ahead and get infected by the same strain again about 10 months after you've had the first infection. The other issue that's going to be important is that this is a disease that the highest risk groups are the elderly. And of course, it's much harder to get an immune response in the elderly. So you may need to use some special techniques to be able to do that. And we do have those techniques, but that may add a set of complications in terms of 
of how to make that happen. So there are many questions that sit in front of us. But if you ask me whether I'm optimistic, I am optimistic that we'll get protection. Um, I'm just not sure how long that protection will last. And this may require regular boosters to keep protection up. This is the million dollar question. When do you think we'll have a vaccine? So if everything goes well, we should begin to get our first signals in the fourth quarter of this year. Now, of course, those could be negative, they could be positive. If they're positive, then we could begin to see um, vaccines being available, you know, early next year. The challenge, of course, would be those would not be fully licensed products. Those would be products that would have to be used under an experimental use authorization under a clinical trial protocol. But we have experience with that. That's what we did with Ebola vaccines. So I think we should be thinking, um, you know, mid next year as a potential time point for vaccines. But again, you know, that'll depend on the science. And despite how much we all long for one, neither Nora Kronig nor Thomas Cooney want to put a date on when a vaccine will be ready. <laughs> um, you know, I think that um, maybe a, a personal comment on, the, on my lessons learned of the pandemic. I think uh, it was really a time uh, where modesty and uh, evidence-based approaches were of the essence, working on scenarios and, and not working on clear predictions of what will happen because it's uh, just impossible to do so. And to a certain extent, I think even uh, not responsible to make assumptions when, when you just basically don't know. I don't think that anybody at the current time can say when. I think, first of all, we will have to answer the question of does it actually work? Is it effective? Is it safe? We have already gone down with a pace that is way faster than what we've ever seen before. Um, but I think that, uh, again, once again, common engagement, international exchange, dialogue, sharing of, uh, of know-how, uh, working together hand by hand, public and private sector in the whole world will be essential and will be the only way to go. To be honest, nobody can be sure. Nobody can give you a guarantee that we will have a vaccine. I would expect we'll have a vaccine, but we don't know yet how effective it will be. Whether you will need to vaccinate uh, once every five years or whether you have to repeat twice a year or every year, we simply don't know yet. But I'm optimistic because it seems to be relatively stable. Therefore, the scientists I talk to are optimistic. I do expect it's more likely that we will have a vaccine by summer next year than this year in big volumes, because simply there are mo too many unknowns. And I really believe that one needs to go through the proper clinical trials, through the proper evaluation. We can't cut corners on safety. And we all know we do have big anti-vax movements in many countries, including in Switzerland. And if you do cut corners, if there are problems with the vaccine, this would undermine a confidence in vaccines probably way beyond COVID-19. A reminder there from our experts that patience may have to be our watchword in this pandemic, because a vaccine, the thing we hope will give us back our normal life, is just too important to get wrong and too important to rush.
brings us to the end of this edition of Inside Geneva. My thanks to our guests, Nora Kronig, Thomas Cooney and Seth Barkley. I'm Imogen Folks. This has been Inside Geneva, a Swissinfo.ch production. And a reminder just before you go that you can hear more episodes of the Inside Geneva podcast series, including an in-depth documentary on the United Nations at 75. To subscribe to Inside Geneva, just go to swissinfo.ch forward slash eng forward slash Inside Geneva. Join us again next time and thank you all for listening. Discover science and innovation in Switzerland with the Swiss Connection podcast. In the current series, we visit CERN and explore what they're up to next in their quest to solve the mysteries of the universe. We uncover groundbreaking discoveries in a Roman archaeological site and get the first glimpse of an exciting supersonic plane powered by hydrogen. From the tiniest particles to the vastness of space, satisfy your scientific curiosity by listening to the Swiss Connection podcast for a mind-expanding experience with Swiss Info. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to follow or subscribe to get your latest episode on time.